the best questions survey la tab. This week, me and Business Daddy are joined by the whole business family to talk about election coverage. We'll talk about the next iteration of the People's Agenda and how it connects candidates with voters. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 142. If you haven't noticed over the past couple of weeks, we're going to spoil it right now. Through the magic of internet and pre-recording, the last couple of weeks haven't been live. I've been on vacation. And that's important to remember because as you get further and further out, you have less access to the news. So the upcoming rapid fire segment was recorded just over two weeks ago. And the news items talked about are based on our predictive algorithm. The actual news items may have varied slightly from these. After diarrhea was identified as a symptom of the Omicron variant, colloquially referred to as the Alberta variant of COVID-19, Edmonton has performed an about-face on its decision to contract out bus cleaning and is now engaging in a massive hiring drive. Doug Schweitzer, Minister of Jobs, Economy and COVID Export Pipelines, was quick to respond to our email and excitedly took responsibility for the outbreaks, which caused the first increase in jobs since the UCP took office. We're told there will be a celebration later this evening on the Sky Palace patio, where Cabinet will take turns playing Russian roulette with nurses' contracts. Release the fans and let's negotiate. That's live audio from downtown Edmonton this afternoon, where a newly sentient Rogers Place stood up from its dormant laying position on 104 Ave, taking thousands of Edmontonians inside hostage. The stadium, with its hallways reconfigured as limbs around its oil drop beer belly, seemed to have grown fed up with the national lacrosse finals being held inside. Diplomatic back channels through the Cats group have revealed that the stadium does not intend to sit down again until Ethan Bear has been traded back to the Edmonton Oilers, and if its demands are not met, it commits to kicking Stantec Tower with its big iron foot. Wondering what's up with the new decorations in West Edmonton Mall? The mall has been decked out top to bottom in a new beige paint job, and every 12 feet there is either a poster with a landscape and vaguely inspiring platitudes, or a reminder to clock out before taking your breaks. This is all in service of the new film crew that will be descending on the mall this week as it has been selected as the venue for The Bachelor Mergers. The new spin-off of the long-running TV show will see several corporate CFOs meeting in the mall to discuss corporate synergy, brand integrations, and collaborative vertical workforce optimization. At the end of it all, one lucky company will have the opportunity to be acquired by a telecom and media conglomerate and have their prices triple, have their service decline, and have their support call centers outsourced to the Philippines. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this episode is brought to you by the ECF, the well-endowed podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation, hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Pongink, and of course, produced by Lisa Pruden, explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. Episode 100, kudos, 100, good job, ECF. It covers the history of the ECF and how the original vision continues to guide the organization's work today. That sounds like an anniversary episode, if I ever heard one. Absolutely. You can subscribe and listen at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Well, I promised a whole business family on the episode, <laughs> and... 
Business family it is. We're joined by, you've heard her before, Karen Unland, the co-founder of Taproot Edmonton. She's here to talk about the next phase of the people's agenda. Welcome back, Karen. Uh, hi. Hi, future people. I hope that the algorithm did not accurately predict the dystopia you're currently living in. That sounded bad. <laughs> it's bad right now. <laughs> this thing's going to be airing right around August 16th, so dystopia confirmed. <laughs> Yeah, there's no escape. We're just telling you what's happening, people. <laughs> we, we we teased out election coverage and the next phase of the people's agenda. I think the best place to start is what's happening? What's going on? So we're on to our next phase of this project. So just to remind people or tell them for the first time, what what is this thing? Last summer, we launched an attempt to find out what election issues are important to people so that we could make sure that Taproot's coverage of that was going to be grounded in that. Matters that the future city council is going to have to make decisions about instead of who's winning or who's sniping at who. Uh, started with a question, what key issue do you want the candidates to be talking about as they compete for your votes? Got a bunch of answers to that. We generated uh, a first draft of the people's agenda that laid out about eight sections of questions that said, like, people care. People want to know, is Edmonton going to be a good place to live? They want to know, what are we going to do about climate change? They want to know what should be done about taxes. All kinds of things that surfaced from a whole bunch of answers. And we took those questions and we turned them into the basis of eight lunchtime events in March and April that we called listening sessions, where we kind of teed up some of those issues with a subject matter expert and then had people go off into breakout rooms to discuss those further. And we gather a whole bunch of information from that. And we promised to do two things based on that, all of that stuff that we heard from the people. One is to was to write some stories, and we did some stories about those listening sessions themselves, and we have started to work on other stories that came out of those discussions. And the other was to generate a robust and useful voter's guide so that people could see, well, the, this is where the candidates stand on the issues that are important to me. Now I know who to vote for in my ward and for mayor. So we're at that second point where... We're generating that voter's guide. And I know I've been a candidate before. I've been inundated with surveys <laughs> out the wazoo. Yeah. What is Taproot doing and what are they going to be sending out? So what we've put together, uh, and it will be in candidates' inboxes by the time uh, they hear this, is a questionnaire that has 30 questions on it. There are 10 topics and three questions each. Those topics are economy, environment, finances, housing and homelessness, planning, police, politics and governance, quality of life, roads and transit. So approximately everything. Approximately everything. I know that there are things that people care about that are not going to be captured in 30 multiple choice questions. But we tried to be as comprehensive as possible and to be as grounded in the things that city council can actually make a decision about. As you know, often, and this is going to be the case this year, um, if there's a federal election happening at the same time, people don't always have a clear idea of what order of government does what. We really wanted to make sure that we were trying to grab onto the things that are local and relevant and 
based on things that we heard from people who participated in the in the earlier phases of this. So you talked about the survey being multiple choice, and that is abnormal. Uh, most of the surveys that get out, sent out to candidates are typically free form, say however much you need to. I think the only one that's really differed from that in recent memory has been the Paths for People one, where they restricted you to only 150 characters, so it could be tweeted. What was the onus of deciding to go multiple choice for the survey? So two reasons. One is uh, we are aware of how many surveys candidates get, and it felt like that was easier than having to write a series of short answer or long answer answers to like to do like a university level test for us in order to get the information. The other reason is we were really inspired by a similar kind of candidate questionnaire that a website in New York called The City did for their recent mayoral their primary their primaries. And so they asked all of the candidates 61 questions, 61 multiple choice questions, and displayed on their website where all of those, there was like a dozen or more candidates for the, for that were running, and just laid them out and said, made it possible for voters to at a glance see where those candidates stood on various issues. And then they created this engine that where voters could take the same set of questions and find out which candidates were aligned with them the most, or at least the most on the things that they care most about. And we thought that would be such a powerful thing for us to be able to provide for the voters of Edmonton, where that you could answer the same questions that the candidates did and find out in your ward who believes the same things that you or the most same things as you do. And the same for the mayor candidates. That sounds a lot to me like in Canada, the vote compass that CBC tends to put out in each federal election. You just answer the survey and it'll plot you roughly with the party that uh, answers similarly. Yeah, the difference is what uh, municipal politics gives you that other levels don't, where all they all compass can really give you is this is your ideology. This is who has an ideology like yours. Our questions are there's definitely ideological differences between the choices, but I, I'm sure you know as observers of municipal politics, things don't always line up exactly on the traditional idea of, a, of the political spectrum. And people have different views on different things. Somebody might be super against the, the EPCOR solar farm and super in favor of more action on climate change. And I don't know if an ideological survey necessarily captures that kind of difference. Well, certainly I can remember several times in the past couple of weeks and months where Mac and I have been puzzled at the results of votes because, you know, we have ideological assumptions about particular councillors, but their votes really don't fall on those lines. There's not reliable voting blocks on Edmonton City Council because most of what Edmonton City Council does is just land use decisions. Yeah. (laughs) Land use doesn't have a huge ideological bent in general. Yeah. Yeah. So take us into some of the development of this survey and this questions because it seems fraught (laughs) with error. Uh, The idea that a news organization would create all the responses for a candidate and a candidate has to select, isn't there a risk potentially of biasing the results? Yeah, there is. There is. (laughs) We're trying really hard not to. We're trying really hard to make sure that 
all of the potential answers that you can choose are going to be things that people would actually choose and that they they don't feel like we've put our thumb on the scale to to make it clear what to us the right answer is. We're not trying to trap anybody or catch anybody. We're trying to sort everybody. That's what we're trying to do. I hope that we have come up with both questions and sets of of potential answers and background information to help people understand what what the question is referring to in such a way that that it just lets people honestly say where they stand on something. We also do have an option that's built into every question that says, I don't have a policy on this issue. It's fair. There are some people who run on a small set of issues and they might not have thought about what the price of transit fare should be. And so we want to give them an out to say, like, I I honestly haven't thought about this yet and I don't know yet what the answer is. Hopefully it also signals to them that you are going to have to think about this if you get elected. So this is your time to start boning up on those issues. But we, yeah, we're trying to make it as fair as possible. One of the many ways that we've done this is to consult with a, a professor at the University of Calgary named Jack Lucas, who does this kind of work all the time. He surveys candidates about where they stand ideologically. It's a little bit different from what we're doing, but he was able to give us a lot of really great advice about how to structure these questions so that we get usable answers that will help people figure out who believes the stuff they believe in when they go to the ballot, the ballot box. And we've had so many uh, drafts of this, Troy. <laughs> I can't tell you. <laughs> you. You got to see a draft, Troy. You've taken the very early version of it, and that was not the first, second, third, fourth. I mean, I lost count on how many drafts, actually. So there's a lot of rewriting, too, to try to make sure that everything Karen just described is is reflected. One thing that struck me about the survey was it was almost as much of an education exercise as it was a candidate response collection because, you know, each question is prompted by a preamble of like, here's a decision that council made or here's an issue that council faces and here's some background on this issue so you can, you know, reliably refresh your memory or take a policy position on it. And that did strike me in that it is very different than what we typically see as candidate surveys because a typical candidate survey will be something like an organization like uh, Yeg Parity might send out a survey that says, do you support women? And do you think women should be able to achieve everything they can in the city of Edmonton? And those questions don't really reflect any material answers. Hmm. Any candidate is going to say, yeah, women are our equals. But when you talk about a policy position and something like GBA plus analysis or applying intersectionality to each policy that you make, those are very different things that cause very different answers. So I think it was really exciting to see a survey that was actually about policy rather than broad strokes ideology. Right. Tell me if this is the case for the the bulk of the questionnaires that a candidate would get. I feel like a lot of those are meant to get as many candidates on the record about whether they agree or disagree with an organization's project or issue that they that that matters to them so that they can issue a report card that says these are the candidates that believe what we believe, and these are the ones that don't. Is that what that was? 100%. Uh, no. 
I won't say it's all of them because for the listener that doesn't know my embarrassment, I ran in the 2017 election. So I've been inundated with all of these before. I think there's two classes of surveys. There's the surveys, exactly what you talked about, from a particular advocacy organization that's just like, do you agree with us so they can either endorse or slag on a candidate? And that represents the bulk of the survey because there's so many nonprofits and so many advocacy organizations. There is the other class of survey where it's just like, you know, a blogger or something like Avenue Edmonton, a magazine that's just like, oh, we want to get all the candidates on the record. Mm. But even then, those surveys are more just tell us about yourself, pitch us, repeat the talking points on your website. They're never typically regimented in how they're formed or reported. Well, and I remember at the when I was at the journal, uh, some election cycles, we would send out questionnaires that were really more like, Help us get to know you. What's your favorite book? What movies do you like? Boxers or briefs? I think we literally asked that one year. And um, I didn't want to do that. No, definitely not. That's not the kind of thing we care about. No. I mean, there's potential. We could like get speaking municipally the morning show as an election offshoot and just like <laughs> cook breakfast with the candidates. Yeah, that happens. Yeah. That could work. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, as is my want, maybe this is a a little more um, uh, eat your vegetables than fun. But I do think that what we're trying to do is a version of what all of those interest groups are doing. But with the sort of there's a right answer-ness taken out of it and at scale, because we're going to we're going to ask 30 of these hard questions about issues, not just uh, one or two or five or ten. The scale question is an interesting one because this candidate questionnaire is only for municipal candidates, not for school board candidates. Correct. Yeah. So in terms of candidates for all the wards and mayor, there's usually like, yeah, Mac, 120, 130 of them in a typical election. Or or maybe less than that if you take out the school boards. Yeah, we're talking 100 to 130. With that, you're not going to get 120 or 130 responses. I can think of one mayoral candidate that absolutely will not under any circumstances respond to your survey. How is this robust against the non-responsiveness of candidates? Like, I I don't think looking at the percentage of total candidates who answer it is that useful or or that that's not the metric that matters to me. First of all, what we want to be able to do is for as many wards as possible, give you as the answers of as many candidates as possible. And I do, I really do think that this survey is going to be the most useful at the ward level, especially in those places where there's a lot of people that are kind of similar. And I don't know which of these people is going to be best, especially in those wards where there's no incumbent. And I think, I hope that those candidates will see that this is a way that we can connect you with your voters. Um, you don't know all the people out there who are who may or may not want to vote for you, and you and you're, it's kind of hit and miss whether you hit them get them at the door. We're going to reach a whole bunch of people in a very easy way that allows you to to let them find out that you're you're the person that they want to vote for instead of randomly or just not voting at all because they don't know who they should vote for. So in terms of that, it's more carrot based. These are all the voters we can deliver to you if you just participate versus, you know, putting a picture of a potted plant (laughs) there. (laughs) 
I think you know enough about me that I prefer nice to nasty as far as uh, motivating people. Um, but I do think that we can create some FOMO too. If all of the candidates in your ward have, where you're running have answered and you haven't, doesn't that look bad? Doesn't look that look like you don't want to tell people what you believe, you, that you don't want to say where you stand beyond the usual bromides that everybody is going to have on their campaign literature? And remember, you don't have to take a position on every question, right? That's you can right. you can say, I don't have a position on this issue and, and an answer for the ones that you do. So hopefully that's another reason that candidates will be more willing to fill it out, even if they haven't thought about the broad spectrum of questions. And then the final carrot is when that Troy Pavlik encouraged us to have, which is at the end of this questionnaire, to give people a place to pitch themselves and then to pledge to publish that somewhere on Taproot's site if they answer our questionnaire. So as a thank you for taking the time to tell the people where you stand on the issues that matter to them, we will let you make your pitch unmediated. I do wonder if there's an additional carrot in this type of survey versus the typical you know, class of surveys. Because when you're filling out a survey for a particular advocacy org and it's long answer and you have to write two or three paragraphs, that's a lot of text for someone to pin you to the wall on. Yeah. You know, a lot of that can be taken out of context and put into a tweet versus a multiple choice answer where it's just like, this is my policy position. I think it's it's a lot safer to answer this survey and connect with voters than it is to respond to a survey for an organization that may only have, you know, a couple hundred people on their mailing list, and it's probably not valuable enough to actually spend the time and fill it out. Right. We're trying to make it worth it. And we are, well, we are going to make it worth it because it's what we do. Because one of the things, one of the things I love about the survey, uh, and I've obviously been involved in this, is just like how the people's agenda went from that really broad question, what do you want the candidates to talk about as they compete for your votes, down to you know, eight really still pretty broad questions, like will Edmonton be a good city to live in? Then we got to the listening sessions and we actually heard about really specific concrete things. I love that this survey has gotten to that point as well and that the questions are fairly specific things. So we're not asking you multiple choice questions like, do you support action on climate change? Yes, no, or maybe. Like there's actual policy-driven questions that are representative of those broader views, but do get into some more specifics. And as you pointed out, Troy, also provide hopefully a little bit of education as well. Well, lay them on me. Let's let's hear some, uh, some examples. Okay. What should the residential speed limit be in Edmonton? 30 kilometers an hour. Done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Multiple choice. Okay, Multiple give me choice. give me my options. Thirty kilometers an hour, forty kilometers an hour, which it will be by the time people hear this podcast. Fifty kilometers an hour, or I don't have a position on this issue. Now I noticed you didn't give them the option to raise the residential speed limit. There. <laughs> um, should we? we <laughs> should we have? <laughs> I mean, if you really want to. Uh, detect if there's any psychopaths in running, I guess we could. But That's a good example of a question that I like because it is just, it's a straight answer. You don't get to hem and haw. And I, I think specifically back into the 2017 election, uh, John Zadick, who campaigned on the idea of traffic safety while also saying we need to increase our speed limits and that school zones don't make sense. Mm. And it, it was just a nonsensical position, but he was able through long form content 
to get that across. Right. And when you pin someone to an actual policy position, that is just more valuable and it's harder to hide from voters in obfuscation. Yeah. Although, again, this survey is meant to sort people, not necessarily create an accountability mechanism, although that that might be how it well, who knows how it would, you can't control how people will use it in the future. But to me, there are candidates who believe 30 is the right answer. There are also candidates who believe 40 is the right answer. Most of them, presumably, most of the incumbents who voted for 40 to be what we have now believe that, right? And then there are some who oppose that change and want it, it to stay at 50. So we're trying to create a question that allows people to pick the lane that they're in so that the voters can say, I'm more of a 30 kilometer an hour person. What's the plan for the data after this survey? Uh, so we know there's going to be some sort of matching mechanism where you yeah. can, as a voter, fill it out and find who you know most closely aligns with you. But will there be a way where you can just browse every candidate's answers for every question? Yes. Yeah. So so you aren't going to have to answer the questionnaire in order to uh, find out where the candidates stand. And in fact, that's why this is still useful, even if we don't get all of the candidates to fill it out, because at least we'll be able to show the ones that did fill it out. So that's one way that that information is going to be displayed. The other is that we will be doing stories on like when we get a, all or the a critical mass of the candidates in a ward, that's a good time to do a, a, a story that says this is how the, the candidates in Nakota Iska line up. Um, and that one maybe the easier one to do because there's not those many <laughs> candidates running. <laughs> and we'll d be doing the same kind of look at the mayoral candidates as well. And I can imagine there being other stories that we see in the numbers around a preponderance or, or a key, a, a very clear ideological difference among people, that kind of thing. We'll, we'll have to see what the, what the answers are. So earlier we looked at an example question and it was you know, in terms of multiple choice, a pretty easy question. It was numeric response, 30, 40, or 50. There's clear options. What about a question that, you know, is more policy-based in its thinking? A more complicated issue or more contentious issue. How can you address that with multiple choice? Do you have another example of that? I mean, speed limits were pretty contentious, weren't they, Troy? <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. Yeah, Fair actually, point. I have one for you that's maybe less contentious, but is a thing that has a bunch of trade-offs around prioritization and uh, what people think is important for the city to provide. So the question is, should the city have more permanent public washrooms? And by we'll explain in the background on the, the questionnaire that by that we mean like that staffed washroom on White Avenue, where it's like it's not porta potties, it's not the bathroom in the library, it's like places that are specifically set up for people to relieve themselves. Uh, so the answers that we provided on this are yes, we need more permanent public washrooms. No, we have enough. No, we shouldn't have any. I don't have a position on this question. Yeah, I'm just thinking about that now. And it really does capture some nuance because when I think of permanent public washrooms like the one on White Ave. And we talked with uh, Punita a couple of weeks mm -hmm. ago on the podcast. And one of the things she mentioned is just that like permanent public washrooms are expensive. 
Yeah. So if you are a conservative, fiscal-minded counselor and that's what you're trying to present, you really do have to think about this question because you're talking about adding another, you know, per washroom, 30, 40K of operational costs per year. Yeah. That's a good question. Okay. There you go. (laughs) And like for me, I would say yes, right? Definitely we need more. I'm not convinced they need to be staffed. Panita was pretty clear that she thinks they need to be staffed and some of the research is that they need to be staffed from other municipalities. But I can still answer yes to that. And then on my own website, if I were a candidate, explain more about you know the other factors that might go into that. Or, of course, when this comes up, council actually has to make a decision about that. That'll be one of the things that you know is taken into consideration. And with some of these more nuanced questions, there's a pretty good chance, in fact, for this particular one, we already have a story idea in the works, to kind of explain a little bit more the nuances of public washrooms and what all the choices and the trade-offs are and what the research has said about the value of public washrooms to a city's accessibility to all kinds of different people. Let's jump into that quickly because we've talked a lot about the survey, but that was only one component of this next phase. There's also stories that Mm -hmm. are being done as companion pieces. And I think one of them came out this week as well. Well, several weeks ago. Sorry. Um, yes. So while this questionnaire is burbling in the background and candidates are filling it out and we're collating the data, the more public facing part of the people's agenda is going to be stories that were inspired by some of the things that we heard in our surveying and listening. So uh, the first feature that came out of that is a feature that Jackson Spring, before he left Edmonton for Vancouver, did, uh, which is about the C5 Northeast Hub, which is a really interesting innovation in social services collaboration and delivery in a part of the city that doesn't have a lot of access to to social services, but does have a lot of need. And so he went up there to Victoria Trail to, to look at what is working, what is challenging, and what might make that experiment uh, tricky to replicate. The other thing that makes this an election issue, even though it's not like the hot button usual kinds of things that people tend to identify as election issues is that the funding for that hub expires in 2022 and it will be up to the next council to decide whether to renew its funding and it would also be up to future councils to decide whether to fund similar kinds of things. So we wanted to put that kind of thing on the radar of people and also just look more closely at something that that we had never covered before and it was it was interesting to find out what's going on up there. It's definitely interesting because this is not something that I had heard much or at all about. And like you said, this does frame election coverage. And, you know, thinking back to the week that this was recorded, if our listeners can remember, uh, the big Edmonton Journal article this week was Oshry sniping at the other mayoral candidates at a secret mayoral debate. Yeah. So this is this is a very different class of story versus exactly what you're talking about avoiding, that horse race coverage. And yeah, I hope it sees some success. I guess we'll see in a couple weeks. (laughs) Well, if nothing else, they will be useful things to for the candidates and for uh, for for the candidates who are elected and for everybody else when those issues do come up. Like this is a thing that council will have to vote on when we get to budget. It's something we they can refer back to, we can refer back to as we help people understand the significance of that decision at the time. So I guess 
the question we always have to ask with something like this is timelines. Uh, we are currently a couple weeks in the past of airing this. So by the time this airs, this will be in candidates' hands. When can voters expect to, you know, go see their preferred candidate by filling out a survey? It depends on a lot of things. But right now the plan is to have it ready for voters to take the same questionnaire and and kind of match themselves with their candidates around September 20th, which I think is the date that nominations close. Uh, so that is when we will have the roster set in stone for who's on the ballot. And that seemed like a good time to be able to give people the opportunity to to match themselves up. We will be publishing where the candidates stand sooner than that. Just that will depend on the pace at which we get the, the responses back. Well, that was illuminating. And for the listeners who have been badgering me in Twitter DMs saying, what are your plans for election coverage? What's coming next? There you go. There um, you go. <laughs> I'm going to be continued to be badgered for two weeks because I didn't think this through <laughs> on putting this one in the queue for publishing, but I'll be on vacation. So I'll just ignore your DMs. <laughs> One thing you shouldn't ignore is your optometrist appointment. This episode is brought to you by Alberta Association of Optometrists, proudly celebrating a century of caring for Albertans. It happens. Parents can easily miss their child's eye problems. Issues can occur in only one eye, making them difficult to notice. The earlier an eye health or vision problem is identified, the more likely it can be corrected. The ICI Learn program provides an eye exam and free glasses, if needed, for kindergarten-aged children. 25% of kids begin first grade with an undiagnosed eye problem. To book your child's eye exam, visit optometrists.ab.ca. The Alberta Association of Optometrists represents almost 800 doctors of optometry in over 80 communities across the province. Members are highly trained, regulated health professionals who provide primary eye health and vision care to Albertans. Learn more at optometrists.ab.ca. I suppose that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for coming on and sharing the plans, Karen. It's always a pleasure to have you, even though uh, I've been told I strike fear into your heart. Uh, <laughs> who knows what Troy's going to say? He's, he's a wild card. Well, yes, although it's uh, at least I have a little bit of c- control here as opposed to my usual experience, which is listening to the podcast shortly after noon on Fridays and just, okay, what do they say? <laughs> It's fine. You're great. Again, I was fishing for the compliment. (laughs) Thank you for delivering. (laughs) That's all we have time for this week. You'll notice the last couple weeks we haven't been doing the election rundown. Uh, That's because, again, if you do the math in your head, (laughs) we've been ahead of the news. You can't do a rundown for a week that hasn't happened yet else you get the rapid fire segment for today. Those will be coming back in subsequent weeks. Uh, I will be back from vacation the week after this airs. So until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Karen. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.